Brought to you by Moonbeam Multimedia. This is 16 to 1, a podcast about education, teaching, and learning. How are you? Doing well. How you are made you? it through state testing, so I'm excited for you. I made it through the English, yeah. At our school, our English state testing is over now, so that's yeah. good. Mm-hmm. We're in the testing window for the state of Ohio, so thoughts and prayers to all my other state tests. Subject matter. Uh, subject peers. Teachers, yes. Mm-hmm. Times are tough. Well, last week when you were going into testing, you seemed like you were, you were you, except you were carrying around a really heavy backpack of worry, and now you do not seem like you're carrying the same load. I feel a lot better. Yeah. I came home on the first night of testing, and I think I slept for a couple hours. Yeah. And you then just, yeah. it was weird, because like the rest of the week, I, I think I was just like, we had two days of English testing, but the rest of the week, I was just like, I didn't have to sleep well. Because like now it's the stress of like, well... How'd they do? Now you you have to wait and see. Yeah. So it like shifts into a different weight, but also on like the testing days, I'm always so afraid I'm going to sleep in or I'm going to like, you know, all of those things. Uh It's like first day of school stress, Mm -hmm. sleep. So, but that part is over. What if I can't find my locker? What if I can't? Yeah. What if my car doesn't start? It's like, but like, you know, adult problems Uh version Uh of that, but we made it. Yeah. And that's what matters. Okay, good. I'm glad that you are on the other side of that. Can I say the funniest part about being a state-tested teacher is that there's kind of an in-between of, like, what your kids say, right? Because we can't talk about, like, what's on the test. But I can Mm -hmm. say, like, how'd it go? How do you feel? And day one, there was, like, half of the kids were like, it was so easy. And I was like, oh. And then the other half were like, that was really hard. And I was like, oh. (laughs) Neither of these are good. And so, yeah, like, when when they were answering it, I was like, I don't even know what I want you to say. (laughs) You you wouldn't then say, it was average. I was challenged, but not too much. (laughs) But I I realized when some said it was really easy, I was like, I don't like that answer. And then when some of them said it was really hard, I was like, I also don't like that answer. (laughs) So I don't know what I wanted them to say, Mm -hmm. but nothing was going to please me. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. anyways, how about you? How are things your way? I, I've been fine. I'm I'm totally uneventful. I have no state tests. My job is not evaluated in that manner. So um, I've had not the same not the same kind of stress that you have. Yeah. No. Okay. Well, I guess it's just me doing. It, it is just you doing the work right now. It's just you. Well, and also the state is like, oh, we might have your test scores by this date. I'm not going to say that date because I don't want to think about it. You don't want to jinx it. Well, I also the state is saying like the week of May 20th, I'll have my my scores Mm -hmm. that seems like a very quick turnaround and i don't know if i like that there's a written portion yeah there are two written portions at Mm -hmm. least because like Mm -hmm. usually on both days or both parts of the test there's usually a writing (laughs) so interesting we shall see okay now we just have to survive the rest of the school year which is somehow more crazy and less crazy. Yeah, so. you got to get through prom and graduation. And- graduation is the big one because mm-hmm. I'm a senior class advisor. So that's like a, a substantial amount of my brain is, you know, that. But mm-hmm. anyways, so this episode. Yeah. We're kind of diverting a little bit away from what we would normally talk about, I feel like. Uh, we are. We're, so we don't tend to do super current event stuff. And no, Chelsea mentioned- prefers things that are 3,000 years old. Oh, okay. I oh. was going to go 600 plus. Oh, okay. But- okay. 600 plus. Yeah, probably. But 3,000 is probably more accurate. Well, I, you know, when I sat down, so so let me just say, this week we're going to talk about a 
currently very pressing issue, which is the education of women and girls in Afghanistan. There's a lot going on. But but I will say that when I started to try to research this, I was like, the situation in Afghanistan, truly, if we wanted to describe it, we would have to go back quite, quite a long ways. But mm-hmm. I went back to the beginning of the sort of modern mm-hmm. Afghanistan. And there's kind of like a, a cutoff of like, I, I started this at like 1747. So that's when Afghanistan kind of becomes the Afghanistan that we mm-hmm. that we know of now. But anyway, yeah. Can we give a quick warning, though? Yes, please. About let's the, do. the language. Oh, yeah. Which. We're not good at uh, Farsi or Arabic or any any of these things. We're probably going to butcher some pronunciations here. So even the, the country, it's a very Americanized way to say it, Afghanistan, with that hard G. I've tried to pronounce it, Afghanistan. It's closer to something like that, Afghanistan. I can't do that. And it's yeah, it's like that thing. It sounds like I'm gonna cough. So, so I think we're just gonna try our best, and please bear with us if we if we butcher it. And sorry for for it being quite wrong. In we places. tried really hard. Uh, so, because because yeah, if I try to say if I try to say it like Afghanistan every single time, it's gonna be just uh, it's gonna be bad. So anyway, okay, yes. So we are talking about the situation there. You've probably heard a little bit about this in the news, but not nearly as much as we would hope. <laughs> like yeah. this, this issue is not getting as much attention as we might want it to. So we're, yeah, we're taking a moment and doing something we don't usually do, which is deal with a current event that's kind of unfolding right now. We, we tend not to do that so much just because it's just the two of us doing research and we don't often have all of the time in the world to dedicate to researching current events for, you know, making sure things are factually accurate and up to date and things like that. So when it's just the two of us researching, it can be a little hard. So we tend to shy away from things that are unfolding in real time because we don't want to do you the disservice of providing you with incorrect information. And we don't get it right every time, by the way, I will just say on the pod, I am sure there are many times when we have said things that might might be a little bit incorrect or uh, inaccurate. We try to research as best we can, but if we get it wrong, bear with us. So anyway... A lot of this is going to be history because understanding the situation right now in Afghanistan is going to be a lot of understanding the history of how modern Afghanistan came to be. So without further ado, (laughs) I'm going to launch into this a little bit of the backstory. And as, as Kate knows, as Katie knows, this is like my favorite thing is to go all the way back in in time. We love to go all the way to the beginning. You know, the context the historical context of events, especially <laughs> these ones, well, can be difficult to make progress if you don't understand the, the history of how we got to a mm-hmm. thing. All right. So anyway. Why don't you take us on back? I will take us on back. My favorite pastime. Yeah. So a lot of, most of this information is um, from Wikipedia. There's are, There are a couple of notes that are from, um, and I'll mention it. There's a Britannica article on the Afghan war. Um, I'll, I'll throw that in too, but. Uh, a lot of this is just Wikipedia and just history, just factual history stuff. So, as always, all of this information can be found in the show notes, and we will put all the links there for everyone. Yes, we absolutely Sorry. will. So, again, starting out mostly from Wikipedia, um, Afghanistan became a country in 1747 when Ahmad Shah Durrani was appointed king. The empire lasted for about 150 years and played an important role in the development of Afghanistan as a nation. And then, okay, this is from the Britannica article that I mentioned. Uh, this is on the Afghan war. 
So the Durrani Empire was eventually overthrown by the British um, because the British cannot stop meddling in this part of the world and all parts of the world. <laughs> I was going to say that um, part, all of the parts. During this time frame. <laughs> yeah, the British are just everywhere making messes across the world. They've got their fingers in all the pies. They sure do. So the first Anglo-Afghan war is waged from 1839 to 1842. But... The Afghans regained their independence in the Second Anglo-Afghan War from 1878 to 1880. And in the years that followed, Afghanistan was ruled by a series of emirs and kings. And then another meddler on the world stage, the Soviet Union, comes along. <laughs> um, so, so we fast forward to the Cold War era. Soviet Union and the United States begin to escalate tensions over all kinds of vital Eurasian infrastructure in the post-World War II era. Everybody's vying for control of the world stage and influence. And what happens is Afghanistan ends up receiving a ton of Soviet development aid, probably more than maybe any other country in the area, from what I could tell. So Afghanistan, and this is going to be a theme of Afghanistan's economy, it, it, because of this constant kind of turmoil and turnover and stuff, Afghanistan has become as a country very economically dependent on foreign aid and foreign investment and outside sources of money, which mm -hmm. means that it hasn't developed its own economy. Which puts towards it in stability. a yeah. mm -hmm. troubling place. Yes, yes. When you, don't, when you don't develop your own economy and you count only on uh, money from certain sources, then it can, it can just lead to a lot of instability and corruption. And well, and like reliability on other... Yeah, Factors. so like if, I mean, if you... somebody decides to pull that aid, which is about what happens to Afghanistan when the Soviet Union collapses and that aid no longer exists, then Afghanistan falls apart mm -hmm. again and we'll get there. They've lost that support. Yeah. So anyway, post-World War II, Afghanistan getting tons of Soviet development aid. Then in 1973, the king of Afghanistan at the time goes to Italy on a trip. A man named Daoud Khan launched a bloodless coup. Uh, he appointed himself the first president of Afghanistan. He abolished the monarchy and declared the country a republic. He also dissolved parliament and banned all political parties. And Khan's government was initially popular, but it soon became pretty unpopular due to its rather authoritarian hmm. policies. Okay. So then this republic is overthrown in another coup, this time not so bloodless, in 1978 by the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. That's a communist political party. After the Soviets withdraw in 1989, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the communist government is overthrown again. It's just a lot of turnover of governments, yeah. as you can see. Um, overthrown again in 1992 by a coalition of Mujahideen. Yeah, we, we, say, we, know we Americans say jihadists, but there is an actual word for it. So Mujahideen groups, uh, the country then kind of, it's just basically civil war at this point. And there are all kinds of factions vying for power in Afghanistan. So then the Taliban enters the scene. Yep. So in 1996, the Taliban, which is a fundamentalist Islamic group, they took control of Afghanistan. And the Taliban ruled Afghanistan for five years until they were ousted by U.S.-led invasion in 2001. The Taliban imposed a strict interpretation of Islamic law in the country, which severely restricted the rights of women and girls. So the 2001 invasion of Afghanistan was a military campaign led by the United States and its allies in response to the September 11th attacks, which were carried out by al-Qaeda, the terrorist group based in Afghanistan that was supported by the Taliban. 
So the Taliban was overthrown on December 7, 2001, when Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, was captured by the U.S. and its allies. The Taliban government was quickly dissolved, and a new interim government was installed. The interim government was led by Hamid Karzai, who was later elected president of Afghanistan in 2004. Mm-hmm. From 2001 on, the Taliban continued to wage an insurgency against the Afghan government. In the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, ISIS has also established a presence in Afghanistan. Yeah. So in 2021, the Taliban once again took control of Afghanistan after the U.S. and its allies withdrew their troops from the country. President Donald Trump signed an agreement with the Taliban in February of 2020, which called for the withdrawal of all the U.S. troops from Afghanistan by May 1st of 2021. By January of 2021, there were only about 2,500 U.S. troops remaining in the country. So the Biden administration delayed the May 1st withdrawal date, and the U.S. military remained in Afghanistan until August 31st of 2021 because of the fear of the instability that would be caused by their withdrawal. On August 15th, 2021, the Taliban took control of Kabul. The Taliban's rapid takeover of the country was a surprise to many, and it led to widespread criticism of the Biden administration's handling of the withdrawal, though Biden in turn claimed his hands were tied due to the actions of the Trump administration. Yeah, this is a fun. That he was just said, a really she sticky said, crossover, like between, like yes, it was like one person handed it off to another. That you know, what I mean, like there is just a lot to sort out with with the U.S. presence in Afghanistan. People uh, in many other podcasts have investigated and argued about this, and I do not feel equipped to comment on it at length here because it's just such a complicated thing. But as far as I understand it my nickel tour of the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan is that we we were there for a very long time, but also we failed to provide real... So, like, economic development, like I said earlier, is kind of at the crux of what's going on here because without an internally developed economy, as soon as an outside force disappears from Afghanistan the Taliban is going to step back in and fill the void. You just know that that's the way it's going to be in Afghanistan because there's so much instability. There's been a history of civil war and turnover and coup after coup after coup. And I don't know how you would expect any place in the world that's gone through that much turmoil in that short of an amount of time. Like, just that, that, to, a little yeah. history that we read through, it was just like, and then one coup, and then another coup, and then another coup, and then the coup was replaced by another coup. So, like, and basically... If a country like the U.S. is going to go into a place like that and expect any stability to come out the other end of it, we better do a good job of providing aid and development support and all kinds of stuff. And that that really didn't happen in the way that it should have in Afghanistan. Mm. So anyway, the U.S. withdraws and it creates this vacuum and the Taliban immediately comes back in and restores a status quo that has been really problematic. So the Taliban has, this is kind of the current status where we are again. It's not that much different from how it looked prior to our invasion in 2001, as far as I can tell. The Taliban's restrictions on women and girls are based on fundamentalist ideological interpretations of Islam. We, we have the same issues with fundamentalist beliefs here in this country. The, the more, the more radical the belief, the more restrictive. Um, the Taliban believes that women and girls should be subordinate to men, that they should not have the same rights and freedoms as men. This is obviously deeply misogynistic and discriminatory, and it's had a devastating impact on the lives of women and girls in this country. And they, the Taliban's also imposed all kinds of restrictions on women and girls, bans on education, employment, public life, participating in public life of all sorts. So 
uh, with education specifically. The Taliban banned girls from attending secondary school above about the sixth grade in 2021. This is when this kind of this stuff first started happening after the Taliban retook Afghanistan. And then about halfway through 2022, the Taliban claimed the secondary school ban was temporary and that a large portion of Afghan society seemed to want the ban. Mm -hmm. Um, There's not much evidence to support these claims. The Taliban then banned women from universities in 2022. Women have been stripped of teaching jobs, other positions in NGOs and other organizations in the country. Just this past December, a letter from Nada Mohammed Nadim, uh, the minister for higher education in Afghanistan at the time, so this is the Taliban ministers, said, you all are informed to immediately implement the mentioned order of suspending the education of females until further notice. Ugh. So that's basically how it came down from on high. It's just like, nope, sorry, no more educational opportunity for women here. So this kind of throws Afghanistan into this moment of crisis where we now are. There's been a lot of pushback from the international community, but uh, like we said at the top of the show, I don't think this issue is getting quite as much attention Mm -hmm. as it probably deserves. But there's been, like I said, there's been across the board international outcry against this, even among predominantly Muslim countries. So the Organization of Islamic Cooperation is an intergovernmental organization of 57 member states. The OIC issued a statement condemning the Taliban's decision to ban women and girls from education in December of 2022. They said that the Taliban's decision is, quote, a violation of the fundamental human rights of women and girls and a setback for the progress that has been made in Afghanistan in terms of women's rights and empowerment, end quote. So even, you know, even a spread out coalition of 57 predominantly Muslim countries have come out against this. And then earlier this year, uh, there was this interesting statement released by Amina Mohammed. Uh, This is, I believe she's the current United Nations Deputy Secretary General. She releases, she goes to, goes to Afghanistan and release, uh, releases a statement following this visit. And she's there to deal with uh, this issue of education of women and just women in society more generally. But um, she releases a statement that says, quote, in the case of the engagement with the Taliban, their messages were off one script. All the things they say they have done and that they have not gotten recognition for. Mm-hmm. We reminded them that even in the case where they talked about the rights and the edicts that they have promulgated for protecting women they were giving rights with one hand and taking away with the other and that was not acceptable yeah that's a we'll put the rest of that statement in the show notes it's a really interesting like she's asked several questions by reporters and stuff about her time there and it's just first of all i can't i can't imagine visiting that country Mm -hmm. in her position (laughs) just like the the risk taking of being there as a woman in leadership and then confronting the Taliban on these issues. It's, it's super fascinating. And she does a really interesting job of walking that line. So anyway, yes, like I said, in the show notes worth a read just to see what it's like being there and trying to deal with this group. Uh, Mm -hmm. The the Taliban leadership sounds infinitely frustrating to Mm me. And I was just thinking about this, like I was reading this, I was like, you know what, I used to think when I was a kid that I was built for like, world stage leadership. I was like, I'm gonna be president when I grow up. That was my, (laughs) that was my, you know, like Uh fourth grade class, whatever. And I'm like, nope, I couldn't do it. Mm -mm. I couldn't be a diplomat. Mm -mm. I couldn't look these people in the eye and be like, okay, I couldn't be like, I'm, 
here in diplomatic relations with you who thinks that me because of my gender doesn't deserve to speak mm-hmm. to you i couldn't do or it be educated yeah or be mm-hmm. educated like you don't think i deserve an education which is pretty much the only thing i like yeah. that motivates me in life yeah, is learning really is. learning is my jam so well, anyway and this treatment of women obviously and the intentional nature of preventing education is something that has been done in countless countries over the years, right? Like this is not something that is unique to Afghanistan at this moment. So I wanted to talk really quickly about um, something that came about in March 2015 from the Obama administration. So this obviously predates what happened, what we're specifically talking about in Afghanistan, but the heart of it is to attack um, these types of things. So in March of 2015, the Obama administration announced the Let Girls Learn initiative. And so this initiative had four strategic approaches to achieve progress, to help allow young women and girls to get an education that they deserve. And so basically what the United States wanted to do was, one, coordinate United States government action, two, use diplomacy, and three, raise awareness, and four, with their partnerships. So they were going to combine these things to start intentionally working with countries all across the world to support financially or whatever was needed to make sure that young girls, women, and children had the access to what males do, basically. And so this is all from the Frozen in Time website. It's in the show notes. It's the Obama, uh, Obama White House archives. Um, the Let Girls Learn yes. kind of website. So mm-hmm. if you go to that website, what they do with all former presidents is they freeze them in time so that you can see it and what archive. it looked like historically. Uh-huh. Yeah. So this is from that website. But this was kind of the goal of the Let Girls Learn initiative. So they wanted to leverage resources across the U.S. government, and they wanted to help support that in- investment for adolescent girls' education around the world. This initiative was supported by the president and first lady, and it was coordinated by the National Security Council staff, and it drew from six government agencies. And this is what I thought was really interesting about this initiative. They used the Department of State and the President's Emergency Fund for AIDS Relief, the U.S. Agency for International Development, the Peace Corps, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, and even the Department of Labor and the Department of Agriculture. And so these groups all work together to help bring together hundreds of millions of dollars in investment to help support girls have access to better education all over the world, even at that time, including Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And so in early 2017, it was reported that the Trump administration was eliminating the Let Girls Learn initiative. They put out a statement saying that they were not getting rid of it, but it was technically eliminated because it was no longer uh, funded. So there have been groups, there were groups, even within our own United States government, that were funneling hundreds of millions of dollars into countries all around the world to try to make sure that these girls had better access to all types of educational opportunities. Yeah, I think the and most... And even back then, that included Afghanistan. Uh-huh. I think the most interesting part of that particular program that you're talking about is that it recognizes that this is a like a multi-system issue, right? So like you were saying, we've got emergency funds for for AIDS relief, uh, international development, Peace Corps, Department of Labor, and AG. So, mm-hmm. like, just the fact that it ha- that an initiative like this has to reach across so many different agencies and organizations, it shows that this problem is just so complex and and huge. When half of society is effectively prevented from mm-hmm. formal educational yeah. opportunity, 
you're essentially you're, you're crippling yourself mm-hmm. when you do that. So, so Afghanistan, part of why people are so concerned about this is because the stability of Afghanistan itself is tied to all of these problems that we're talking about with uh, civil war and mm-hmm. uh, extremist groups and, um, y- you know, misogyny. And anyway, all of these things, it's preventing Afghanistan from from a long term more stable government among other things Mm -hmm. and it's it's certainly turning back the clock of of progress that might have been being made in those kind of intervening years and again there's so much there's so much geopolitics at stake here that we're just really not qualified to comment on and but but like what i know is that if the international community is going to bother to have a presence in places like afghanistan it should do it in a way that supports the growth and the individual freedoms of all citizens in those places. Mm-hmm. And I think we have largely as an international community failed, <laughs> but like you're saying, there has been some attention given to these things over time and there have been more and less successful initiatives. And yeah, the let girls learn program is, was one such attempt and then there's also so now there's also like this internal uprising happening in Afghanistan. There are all kinds of protests and demonstrations going on, and I we've even been seeing some of this has been showing up on my TikTok. Mm-hmm. I don't know yeah, how this did. is happening, but like women and girls in Afghanistan are somehow in the streets getting their message out of protest about their restrictions on especially education is a big one. So do you want to kind of talk through some of the, yeah. the protesting and demonstrating that's been happening so as of april 2023 the situation for the education of women in afghanistan remains dire girls are still banned by the taliban from attending secondary school and women are facing increasing restrictions on their access to education at all levels in recent weeks there have been some reports of girls being allowed to return to school in some provinces but these reports are generally unconfirmed the taliban has also announced that it will be opening a women's university but it is unclear when this will happen or what the curriculum will be or indeed why any woman would want to attend a taliban run university yeah yeah i mean Which would it would be the oh. taliban's claims generally cannot be taken seriously uh mm-hmm. because they have been shown to be untrustworthy like i said this this ban was supposed to be temporary yeah. it's been largely not temporary temporary since they've announced going. it yeah they're fe- they're facing an increasing amount of pressure from the international community on this stuff so yeah, yeah. so yeah the international community has continued to condemn their actions um and their restriction on women's education but like you said they haven't really moved too much so, meanwhile, protests are mounting on the home front. A notable protest took place on March 8th, 2023, which was International Women's Day. And that was when hundreds of women and girls took to the streets of Kabul to demand their right to education. The protesters chanted slogans such as, Education is our right, and we will not give up. And like Chelsea said, both of our TikToks were actually flooded with images and videos of that. Um, I which- just wanted to know how that happened, because I don't, like, I, I wouldn't imagine... That TikTok is uh, like so. So even like the internet in Afghanistan yeah. is government controlled, and I can't imagine that they would allow platforms like like you know you have to imagine just us as Americans, and this is kind of outlandish to think, but like our government is currently debating whether or not to ban TikTok. So if you, but if you can imagine a place in the world where there's basically a lockdown on journalism and mm-hmm. reporting and all of this kind of stuff, um, it's actually kind of 
it's kind of remarkable that these images uh, made it out because it's it's yeah. hard for it's hard it, like that's why there's such a mm-hmm. such a lack of attention being paid to this issue in part is because it's hard for news to get out of these places mm-hmm. yeah and of course some of those those videos and images included violent images of the Taliban responding to and dispersing those protesters where uh, several of them were injured and arrested mm-hmm. So the Taliban has also punished journalists who have covered the protests. And in January of 2023, the Taliban detained four journalists for several hours after they tried to cover a protest by schoolgirls in Gardez. Mm-hmm. Just a couple of videos that we found while researching that I thought might be useful for some um, as far as other types of protests and demonstrations happening. There's a link in the show notes to a YouTube video from BBC News, and it includes an interview about the secret schools that are teaching girls in Afghanistan. And so in Kabul, there are secret classrooms being run out of basements. If you click on the link in the show notes to the video, you can see an interview with one of those teachers. Uh, This teacher says that someday she'll have more than 30 young women hiding in this basement with her where they hold class. And they attempt to continue their education as best as they possibly can. But that also means of those 30 young women are women of all ages, all types of levels of learners. Due to safety, obviously, there wasn't much information provided because obviously this is very illegal for them to be doing. But the interviewing even included a young schoolgirl talking about how she wished so badly to be able to go back to school. And everyone in that video is uh, like blacked out and their voices are distorted. So you, you couldn't possibly. I can't imagine. I can't imagine having to meet in secret to learn. Mm-hmm. Like under talk- threat of like corporal punishment or death trying yeah. to learn. So that was a really interesting BBC article and interview that they talked about. And they also talked about in that same clip, if you watch it, that they had been facing like one of the harshest freezes in quite a while. And they had lost like thousands of cattle and things like that. And Oh, so, yeah, the weather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, really, it gets, which is another thing that people don't really understand about Afghanistan. They think of it as being just a hot desert, but mm-hmm. it gets super, super cold. Yeah, it was like... <laughs> I think in the video they said like negative 20 for like long amounts of time and that yeah yeah cat, like like herds of animals had been killed and so had children from mm-hmm. hypothermia so really and again tough. this is a country where like the economy is just kind of chaotic like a lot of the the money that the government has comes from taxes on illicit exports Mm-hmm. So like what was it like opium yeah <laughs> there's a lot of opium exports limiting. but like so like basically when you have a, a an extremist a fundamentalist government that has t- taken control mm-hmm. through military activity. You can right. imagine that the country's money comes from sketchy places. So anyway, there's just not much recourse for for natural events that happen like mm-hmm. that. Um, like so, these these things have an outsized impact on the economy and livelihood of people trying to exist in this country as well. So yeah. yeah. And then the last thing I wanted to include, because we love a good TED Talk, is a TED Talk. So this TED Talk is by a woman named Shabana Basij Resik, and it is called The Dream of Educating Afghan Girls Lives On. And so this is just the blurb from it, and the the link is in the show notes as well to watch this. But uh, Shabana is an educator, and so she shares the story of evacuating more than 250 students, staff, and family members from the School of Leadership in Afghanistan, which is called SOLA. 
which is the country's first and only all-girls boarding school, to Rwanda after the Taliban took power in 2021. Wow. And so a quick search of Shabana shows that she has been fighting for education in Afghanistan for a very long time. But um, that TED Talk is kind of a great story of what educators and and people are doing. And the one thing I forgot to mention in the BBC article, to jump back to the one we just talked about, that woman that was working as a teacher in that classroom, the secret classroom, had been a jeweler. Oh, wow. And decided to start educating. And so that was what she decided to do. So um, women will show up for women, you know? And I think that's really special. So anyway, there's that TED Talk, and then then there's that BBC article, or the video uh, to watch, just to kind of give you an idea of what's happening yeah, just a couple of resources, because again, it feels to me like, I, I feel like I heard a little bit about this when the protests were happening, and that since then, the world has been distracted by other things, mm-hmm. which, again, understandable, because there's so much chaos uh, in so many places yep. in the world. But, um, yeah, this issue in particular, I, I don't think many of us here, or even many of us listening to this podcast, uh, we are... <laughs> Like podcast listeners kind of self-select for people who are interested in education. So I just put yourself in these women's, you know, lives for a second and try to imagine mm-hmm. having to sneak around to to learn. Mm-hmm. I, I can't, I can't, like, I can't. <laughs> I know. I, I think can't. about that all the time when my kids are like, oh, I hate coming to school. I know. And I know. I'm like, we do take, you have any idea how lucky it so you are for granted. that you get to come to school? Like, it's it's a gift. Um, it's a gift but, that we have public education. We, so, we often forget that because there's so many problems with our public yeah. education system. But it's a gift that yeah. we're, you know, because we could be in these scenarios. So we'll keep up on this and update this every few episodes just if we see something, uh, just to kind of stay on top of it. Because this is something we should all be certainly paying attention to and keeping an eye on moving forward. Yeah, and I think that it might be time for us to to hold our elected officials a little more accountable for this and start to put their feet to the fire about this because the United States' involvement in Afghanistan has been very troubled, to say the least. <laughs> I, I'm, again, trying not to pass too many judgments because I don't really... I don't feel like I'm qualified to understand no. the geopolitics of these things well enough. But, mm-hmm. but I do know that I think that yeah, I, I just think we could have and could in the future do a better job. For sure. And a lot of it is, again, around this economic development issue, which is tied to all of these things. But but any anyway, it's just it's ridiculously complex. But the world community, I think, needs to stop turning the other way mm-hmm. and pretending like this isn't a bigger issue because it absolutely is. And yeah. if we want as a world stage, if we want stability in this region, then we are going to have to start investing in human beings in that region mm-hmm. instead of just wars. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so anyway, like I said, we'll keep up on it. Yes. We'll try to do an update every few episodes just if we uh, catch anything in the news and just to make sure we're being intentional about being aware. Yep. I, like I said, I, yes, we, we are in such a place of, of privilege here that, I mean, that you and I were able to pursue education in this country, we can easily take for granted because it's kind of the default that yes, of course, everyone, anyone can go learn if they want to. And uh, learning is at the heart of everything I do and care about. And I, I just cannot imagine being barred from doing it mm-hmm. i cannot even wrap my head around an existence where my government told me that i am not allowed to learn yeah 
And I also can't imagine the difficulty of trying to get this message of resistance out when the people who are preventing me from learning are also the people in charge of, uh, you know, mm-hmm. communications and journalism and all kinds of stuff in the country. And I feel like it's our it's our duty right now to try to bring attention to these things. Um, that's really all we can do on the on the pod yeah. here, anyways. Try to bring attention yeah. to it and make you all aware mm-hmm. of it. But so anyway, peace. Okay. All right. Are we ready to go to fill in the blank? We're gonna switch downshift from this extremely intense try to make this problem on the world stage okay Okay. you want to do last episodes sure go for it i will do it here is last episode's question again this is fill in the blank if you know the answer to these trivia questions write into us we'd love to hear from you um our email address is hello at 16 to 1.com all spelled out we would love to hear from you and if you answer correctly we'll send you some stickers or even if you don't answer correctly we'll probably send you some stickers (laughs) if you want stickers and you ever email us just please um include your address when you email us because we'd love to send you some stuff but we can't we can't unless we know where to mail it so we actually owe i think we owe some people some stickers right now. probably i'm always in a constant state of owing people stickers so anyway uh if i owe you stickers please remind me okay all right so find me last episode's question National Honor Society is one of the most famous student organizations, building its purpose off of the four pillars, scholarship, leadership, service, and character. The National Honor Society was founded by the National Association of Secondary School Principals, with the Alpha Chapter of NHS founded at Fifth Avenue High School by Principal Edward S. Rainierson in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In what year was NHS created? 1921. It was. 1921. Been around for a while. It has been. Okay, so this episode's question. Yep. Every year on April 22nd, Earth Day is celebrated around the world. Oh, yeah, that was yesterday, by the way, when we were recording this. Uh, yesterday was Earth Day. So. Yeah. Yeah. Happy Earth Day. So, first starting in 1970, after the Senator Gaylord Nelson, the junior senator from Wisconsin, had long been concerned about the deteriorating environment in the United States. Senator Nelson announced this idea for a teach-in on college campuses to the national media, which has over time become what we see and experience today. So while the USA has been celebrating Earth Day since 1970, in what year did the movement go global? Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Wisconsin. <laughs> Who knew? Wisconsin. It also came about because of a, a book that had just been released and been really popular in the New York Times. And then there had also been a huge oil spill in California. And so all of it kind of yeah. combined into this. I feel like the United States starts to care about environmentalism every couple of years when an oil spill happens. Anytime the ducks are covered in oil, we yep. hate it. Whenever we see images of wildlife covered in oil, then we temporarily care about the environment. But otherwise, we're just kind of like, whatever fossil then, fuels, it's fine. Once we don them back to health. <laughs> and we move on. Okay. So what did we learn? The last bit. Do you want to go first or would you like me to go first? It's up to you. Mine's kind of on topic. Okay, I'll go first to get mine okay. out of the way because mine's not on topic. Okay. I learned about this thing called the uh, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC Fairness Doctrine. So this was a policy introduced in 1949 that required the holders of broadcast licenses both to present controversial hmm. issues of public importance and to do so in a manner that fairly reflected differing viewpoints. So this doctrine was repealed in 1987 under Ronald Reagan's FCC, Mm -hmm. and we'll get to the mess that that has caused, but also, I didn't know this existed. I learned about it on TikTok, as I do many things right now, but 
I didn't know that we had this fairness doctrine. And it kind of reminded me of the way that, and I, I don't even know if this is currently the way that people think of the BBC, but we, we've talked about, you and I have talked about this a little bit with like the BBC having this history of uh, neutrality. Like they have, they had for the longest time, mm-hmm. they would call their people, their on-air people, they would call them news readers because they're, they were there to read the news and, and not, not have a pontificate. Opinion, right. Yeah. So like neutrality in news reporting was not something that I have historically associated with U.S. media, but that's because I grew up in the post-Fairness Doctrine era. Now, our parents' generation and, you know, people before us operated under this thing. And you can imagine how your interpretation of the news as trustworthy would be very different. Mm-hmm. depending on whether you lived in the post pre For or sure. post fairness doctrine era. So anyway, a fairness doctrine, it was created in response to concerns that the three major networks at the time, so NBC, ABC, and CBS in the United States, <laughs> were using mon- their monopoly power to present a one-sided view of controversial issues. Gee, this doesn't sound familiar at all, does it? Hmm. The doctrine required broadcasters to air both sides of controversial issues, which is super interesting. So... It's uh, it's controversial from the start, as you can imagine, and I understand why it's controversial, mm-hmm. because critics argue it violates the First Amendment right sure. to free speech, and that it stifles debate by forcing broadcasters to give equal time to all sides of an issue, even if those sides are not equally valid. In 1987, the FCC repealed the Fairness Doctrine. It argued that the doctrine was no longer necessary in an era of cable television and the internet, where there were many more sources of information available to the public. Okay, so again, the airwaves. <laughs> so the airwaves that the major networks are using, they, you have to you have to get a license to broadcast on those airwaves. So there is some infrastructure in the United States that is so massive that it requires a kind of centralized regulatory, hmm. you know, a regulatory agency. I've been reading about this a lot in that book that I've mentioned a couple of times about the Bell Labs, because yeah. Bell Labs, uh, working on the telephone network in the United States, also had to work very closely with the United States government because stretching telephone lines across the entirety of the country, that's a project that would be very, very difficult to manage if it were a bunch of one-off companies kind of running it. So in that case, too, Bell Labs got this sort of monopoly power. And then back to this case with the Fairness Doctrine, it's NBC, ABC, and CBS have this sort of monopoly power to present information to the public because there's a limited resource, and that's broadcast airtime. So we've kind of evolved now, especially with the introduction of the internet, that scarce resource of airtime is now not so scarce anymore. People can get their news from multiple sources. So. Yeah, look at us. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, podcasting. Podcasting has come along. We're doing it. <laughs> We've nuked the, the Fairness Doctrine, apparently. No, but like, basically... Please don't come for us. Opponents of the Fairness Doctrine argued that because of this propagation of sources and all kinds of different ways that people can get news info, we no longer have to be worried about being fair on news on the news because well if people don't like this one thing they can just go listen to this other thing so (laughs) the repeal of the fairness doctrine has been cited as a contributing factor to the rise of partisan media in the united states in recent years there have been calls to reinstate the fairness doctrine and some argue that the doctrine is necessary to protect the public from the dangers of partisan media while others argue that the doctrine is outdated and no longer necessary because of social media and the internet I, for one, feel as though we can see the direct results of the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine, and I didn't even realize that what I was witnessing 
was that was the result of the repeal of the fairness doctrine but when you look at major cable news networks now they fall into highly partisan political camps on mm. one side or the other you can pick your poison and i guess i would say that i don't know that this fairness doctrine as it was instantiated at the time is the answer to bias and unfairness in the media i don't know if it's a perfect solution but i do know that the hyper partisan reporting and sort of network positioning and jostling and this comes from the top down because all of these things are still like huge mega mass media monopolies you know i don't think it's a good thing the hyper partisanship I, I think it's destroying our ability to work through political disagreement and all kinds of stuff so i don't know that the fairness doctrine was the the panacea the answer to all of our problems or that it should come back i don't i don't know that for sure but i do know that the mess we have now is not really sustainable yeah for sure <laughs> so anyway this came up in the context of this this older woman was presenting this on tiktok i gotta go find the tiktok and maybe link to it in the notes if i can discover it again but she was saying like if you're a younger person and you don't understand why uh, the older people around you have this sort of reverence for certain newscasters. Perhaps it's because they grew up in an era of the fairness doctrine and yeah. they could trust in the news because the news historically was required to present both sides of an issue mm -hmm. and to give airtime to dissenting views because of these airwave monopolies. And now that we're no longer required to do that, perhaps your parents generation has not realized that we no longer operate in the era of the fairness doctrine mm -hmm. and that we can't trust our news in the same way anymore and i think that that's you know i think it's just an in interesting cultural yeah it's a big shift shift yeah and the internet has just kind of exploded all of this because now there's no more you know anybody can put a website into the world and say anything they want to and anybody so can record a podcast and put it out there for people to listen to <laughs> So anybody can say anything. So I, I understand why mm -hmm. the doctrine itself might not be a thing that can exist anymore in, in the internet-enabled mass media era. But but I do feel like we've lost something in respecting the idea that any monopoly shouldn't uh, present mm -hmm. any one-sided viewpoint. But anyway, yeah. Okay. Super interesting. That's what I learned about the FCC Fairness Doctrine. Episode, it sounds like. Yeah, it really does. So. Okay. What did you learn? Well, quickly, I learned, I, I finished a book last week, and it's called Buried Beneath the Baobab Tree. Okay. Might be Baobab. Might be Baobab. It could go Baobab, either way. Baobab. Okay. Uh, the Baobab tree is the tree that's talked about in The Little Prince, if uh -huh. you've read that piece. And so this book is written by Adobe Trisha Nubani, and it also includes a journalist who does the afterword, and her name is Viviana Mazza. So... The book itself is based on interviews with young women who were kidnapped by the Boko Haram and then taken from their homes and forced into marriages and things like that Wow! by the Boko Haram in Nigeria. Um, so you were doing some light reading this week. Well, it was recommended to me by a coworker, and I was actually reading it as a way to decide if I wanted to order a class set to teach it. Mm -hmm. And it's about this one young girl's um, fight for her life, basically. And so just to... Kind of what I learned, though, I didn't have a lot of knowledge about Boko Haram before that, obviously. So this is from the counterterrorism guy. Yeah, I was going to say, that's also an Islamic terrorist mm -hmm. group, right? Yeah, and so I included this link in the show notes. Yeah, it's just from the counterterrorism guide from the United States government. So Boko Haram refers to itself as the JASD. 
They are a Nigeria-based group that seeks to overthrow the current Nigerian government and replace it with a regime based on Islamic law. It's popularly known in Nigerian and Western media as Boko Haram, which means Western education is forbidden Wow! because the word Boko is a holdover from the colonial English word for book. Oh my gosh. So the book itself is a story combined from many true stories of the girls stolen and taken by Boko Haram about one young woman's fight for her life when taken by them. And I didn't know a lot about this topic, obviously, like I said, so I also didn't know this was the topic Chelsea was going to choose for this episode. And so as I started reading it, I was like, oh my Lord. So different country um, Mm -hmm. and another group of young women who have been taken from their homes and forced in other places and prevented from learning and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess what I would say that I learned is about uh, Boko Haram and what they did to these young women and that they are continuing to do to people in Nigeria, Chad, Niger, Northern Cameroon, and Mali. Hmm. So kind of uh, a weird little just happened that I just finished that book and Chelsea chose this topic. So yeah, I was going to say. I a... don't, you know, I, I did learn a lot, though, because I wasn't familiar. I'd heard of Boko Haram, obviously, but nothing so clear. So the book is... It's very challenging because it's like parts of the books are about like in in these communities where the girls were stolen. It's like their dads and their uncles try to build enough of a resistance themselves to march and follow where their girls were taken and them being turned away saying you, you can't beat them. You're not, you know, so uh, really rough, but a really incredible story. And yeah. And if you don't know what a baobab tree looks like, also look those up because they're really cool. They're like... um I was reading an article about baobab trees yesterday, actually, and they were, oh, they're called like water monsters or something like that because of how much they store in their trunks. Huh. It's really cool. They're really pretty trees. They're huge. Oh, yeah. These are the ones with the really, really thick they're trunks. Huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They look like mm-hmm. another world, basically, but they're really beautiful trees. And so that's the book, Buried Beneath the Baobab Tree. Wow. Great book. Lots of learning. And I just started, so I will hold myself accountable for the next episode. I just started Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. That mm. was another recommendation by a coworker. Mm-hmm. So trying to keep myself on track to read all my books this I year. I know. I really need to, I feel like I've been talking about this, this Bell Labs book that I've been reading for about five episodes now, which is embarrassing because I need to finish it. But it's so yeah. dense. I just know if I say it on here and I have to remind myself that I said I was reading it, yep. um, then I might keep myself so listeners it. please shame us into finishing our books yeah i should have i should have their eyes watching god done by then i'm like 10 percent of the way right now so i'm enjoying it so far as well but i will give a better update once i have finished it it's a very famous book so i'm sure it's wonderful but that's what i'm doing okay anything cool. else a final thoughts before we wrap i don't think so i just it's been it's been good for me to be reading books that challenge my single world you know mm-hmm. my single stories and I'm always, um, you know, like I said, I was reading the Baobab tree book because I was looking, I was reading it to see if I wanted to teach it. And I'm reading Their Eyes Were Watching God because I want to see if I want to teach it. And so it's been good to kind of challenge myself and push myself to read some text, uh, not only for myself, but also to see if they're um, something I can introduce to my classroom. So that's been good for me. So I'm happy to keep doing that. And I'm always looking for book recommendations, especially as summer comes. So if you have any books about these similar topics or just others, please share them because I'm about to have a lot more time than I normally do to do fun reading, as I call it. Yeah. That's it. Anything else for you? No, I don't think so. Um, If I owe you stickers, find me, text me, call me something, let me know. (laughs) 
If you don't know me, email us at hello at 16to1.com and send us your info and I will mail them within three to six business months. Okay. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We'll see you next time. We will see you in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. Supporting 16 to 1. We're trying to grow our audience, so please check us out at 16to1.com, all spelled out, and tell your friends about the show. On our website, you can find links to follow us on social media, an archive of all our old episodes, and a contact form where you can get in touch. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next show. Can I feed my elephant real quick? It's important to me. Okay.